Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. This month, we celebrate our first year of the Social Protection Podcast. Over 16 episodes, we have explored controversial ideas like universal basic income, dived deep on landmark programs like Bolsa Familia, and explored the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on social protection systems worldwide. This month, we're talking about another ambitious agenda, Universal Social Protection, or USP, 2030. Under the co-leadership of the World Bank and the International Labour Organization, USP 2030 was created with a mission to achieve social protection for all at any time. To this end, it urges countries and international partners to support the global commitment to implement nationally appropriate social protection systems and measures for all, including flaws, by 2030. The third USP 2030 membership assembly was held this month. There are many paths to expanding social protections, and in today's episode, we're talking about approaches that blur the traditional lines between social assistance and social insurance, and what it might take to reach that ambitious 2030 goal. With me today, I have Maliki, who is Director for Poverty Alleviation and Community Empowerment at Indonesia's Ministry of National Development Planning. Welcome, Maliki. Hello, Joe. And Shay McClanahan, who is Senior Social Policy Specialist at Development Pathways. Welcome, Shay. Thank you so much for having me. Maliki, if I can start with you, different countries are on different pathways as they move towards universal social protection. How do you think about universal social protection? And how is that 2030 goal reflected in Indonesian policy? Okay, uh, let me start by thinking what is universal means to us. So meaning like the whole population of Indonesia without anyone left behind. Social protection programs are supposed to be accessible for all people at any time and also can protect them through all uh, stages of the life cycle based on the level of vulnerabilities. So social protections consisting of social assistance, social insurance, and also labor market. That Actually, those three have to be linked coherently to protect the people. For us, the social assistance programs are primarily available and also directed to those with the highest vulnerability level who face difficulties contributing to the system. Uh, While social insurance is available for all with premium levels adjusted to the ability to pay. And the last one is the labor market. So be inclusive to everyone with different challenges. We actually stated our targets of universal social protections, especially on our national health insurance to be like all the whole populations covered by our national health insurance by 2024. It's already in the, what we call medium-term development plan, 2020-2024. So in addition to that, we also already stated in the law number 40-2004, is that uh, our labor social insurance have also to be owned by the whole workers at the same time, you know. So this is quite actually quite ambitious, but hopefully we can get there. Shay, can you give us a sense of some of the other ways countries are moving towards universal social protection through a combination of contributory and non-contributory schemes like the ones we've just heard about in Indonesia? 
Yeah, those are great examples in Indonesia. And I think maybe rather than focus on other country specific examples, I might focus on tools or the, the ways in which countries are generally approaching this question. And I think there's definitely still a lot of movement on the last resort policy front in the sort of cash transfers in quotes for households that are assessed as being poor by whatever national measure. That's definitely still a trend. But where I see the more exciting progress and potential is in the development of life cycle schemes. And specifically, I'm talking about tax financed life cycle schemes. So a shift away from household-based transfers and towards individual entitlements to more of a rights-based approach to social protection. And what do I mean by this? More like uh, child benefits, but also you can have old age pensions and countries are still putting in place tax-financed old age pensions. And I think we're also starting to see, especially in the wake of COVID, the countries are paying more attention to other kinds of life cycle risks, such as unemployment, such as maternity, where those kinds of risks used to be protected and most countries are, pro are provided for under the contributory system, but there's been more attention uh, to how you might provide those guarantees outside of the contributory system. There's also expanding social insurance. So there's a lot of initiatives around the globe of countries focusing on how they can increase coverage under the existing social insurance schemes, but also reforming those social insurance schemes to make them more attractive, to make them more sustainable. And I see this as a really exciting outcome of COVID, that more people are talking about social insurance systems as a really viable way, that there's a lot of potential still for expanding those systems in, in meaningful ways. And then that brings me to what I see as a development, and that is that there seems to be more thinking about systems rather than individual schemes. I think now countries are starting to see that we need to move beyond this narrow focus on individual programs, individual schemes, and think much more systematically about how they fit within the broader array of provisions that, that countries provide. Maliki, Shay was highlighting the role of social insurance and the fact that it has had greater prominence since COVID. Indonesia has been very successful in expanding health insurance coverage, for example. I saw quite recently that Indonesia had introduced a new unemployment benefit for workers already registered for social insurance in the wake of COVID, which is a very interesting development. These are all really important steps towards achieving more comprehensive social protections. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of those experiences? So actually, despite uh, a lot of challenges to make it realized, the government of Indonesia has a strong commitment in making uh, all people covered by social insurance. And according to the law, the government can provide subsidy for the most vulnerable with the health insurance premium. And since then, the government already supported almost 40% of the poorest populations for the health insurance premium. Starting from 2014, the members of the uh, National Health Insurance is uh, rapidly expanded into around 86% of the total population. That actually makes our uh, national health insurance is one of the biggest health insurance in the world. So there is a lot of also challenges, especially on the financing 
aside, but I think we can handle it in the future. And then the government also just issued law number 11, 2020. That's like an umbrella law just to stimulate investment for creating more decent jobs. And one of the policy created by this law is we have to have the unemployment benefit to complete our current labor social insurance, which only like four uh, programs, uh, you know, accident programs, uh, death benefit, pension, and also old age for the both here, formal and informal uh, workers. So this unemployment insurance is a form of unemployment benefit system uh, that is designed to provide the unemployed with a partial and temporary income replacement. And in the same time, uh, we also give them access to skill training, reskilling, or also job placement facility. And then while they do the training, we also provide like some uh, stipends. Uh, so by integrating uh, these three components, these new programs actually aims to assist the unemployed uh, maintaining their livelihood uh, during the transition period and smoothing their way back to uh, work life. But the caveat is that to be eligible, the participants must have participated in the government social security program. So this one is, has been working, I think it is starting from 2018, 2019, and then it's also become quite big during the pandemic COVID because there's a lot of people lost the job. And then we realized that we also have to think about the sustainability of the programs. So this one is like kind of transition from the fully funded government uh, programs into more contributory uh, programs. Even though in unemployment insurance, there is some part of the, the premium also provided by the government, you know, because we try to also like give like some incentive for the informal workers to uh, join with this social insurance programs by providing this unemployment insurance. So then it will become more interesting. We commit not to increase the premium, or not to increase the fee of these uh, programs, but then consequently that the government also provides some part of the contributions to make this program works. Shay, Maliki has given a couple of examples of a kind of blended approach where you have tax financed subsidies covering the cost of insurance premiums, are there other approaches that blend or blur the line between social assistance and social insurance like that? I was interested in the fact that the two examples that have been relatively successful so far have been the health and the unemployment uh, insurance schemes. And I think that's because precisely those are providing an immediate and tangible benefit to people so that they can see immediately what is the reward of participating, but also how can I actually afford this? Because in a lot of countries, in order for the systems to be financially sustainable, contribution rates have been set at quite high levels. And that's particularly true for self-employed and independent workers where often they're required to pay uh, double what an employee would be paying. So not just the contributions are high, but also that, as you alluded to, the benefits that they're going to be deriving from those systems, and certainly the most prominent and well-known of the benefits, are usually well into the future. So these are the challenges, and this leads me to, to the example that we were working on with the ILO and other stakeholders in Vietnam on a proposal that has been called the multi-tiered child benefits proposal. And what we meant by that was that 
a lot of contributory systems do provide contributory family allowances, but those family allowances have never really been linked to uh, a non-contributory or tax-financed guarantee, but they've also not really been leveraged as a means of trying to encourage participation in the social insurance system. So really trying to uh, think about the communication aspect around that and the power of introducing contributory child benefits as a way of making the system look more attractive and actually at the end of the day, be more attractive and affordable for young families in particular. And that, you know, there's a large number of, of workers who have children. So the potential for for expansion was quite high. And at the end of the day, they did, they were able to adopt contributory child benefit uh, as part of their social insurance. Um, I know it was in the draft law that includes the blended approach. So both the contributory, but also ensuring that there's a guaranteed tax financed child benefit for all children in Vietnam. But the way that the institutions were structured, there's been progress on one side, but not so much progress on the other side. So there's still a pending need for picking up the tax financed element or component of those proposals in Vietnam. Nonetheless, really exciting possibilities there. Maliki, thinking now more on the social assistance side, Indonesia has expanded its safety net for poor families and children, especially over the last 20 years. It provided a lot of emergency assistance through COVID to a large portion of the population. But I think it's fair to say that some parts of the Indonesian population still have relatively low coverage. The data shows particularly around people who are currently elderly and people with disabilities. Can you talk us through? how Indonesia is thinking about covering those gaps and expanding coverage for those groups? Before the pandemic of it, we actually have at least four big social assistance. The conditional cash transfers provided children and also the mother, and then the subsidized premium of the health insurance, the scholarships program, and also the food voucher. Those four big uh, programs are uh, actually quite uh, major and cover almost like 40% of the poorest family. But then, you know, when, when COVID started, we kind of uh, starting to see not only like the 40% of the poorest because, you know, there's so many vulnerable people affected by the pandemic of it. But then we identif- identify some groups such as like female household head, you know, that uh, that work alone, and then elderly, disability, informal workers. We realized that actually with those groups, they need more, you know. So we, starting from the pandemic of it, and then now we are in the process of the social protection reform. We are thinking to one is actually we have our programs, especially for the elderly and the people with disability, and we also thinking on how we can like providing uh, larger benefits. So therefore, I think uh, this is one of actually we are trying to push that uh, we have to have like a new type of conditional cash transfers for elderly and also the people with disability. Shay, on this podcast, we've just presented a two-part discussion about the concept of the universal basic income. This is you know an idea that's got a fair bit of hype behind it, perhaps. The idea of providing tax-financed, regular, unconditional benefits for everybody. 
it's quite a different idea to this more orthodox approach of trying to expand insurance at the same time as you expand assistance until you've sort of met in the middle and everyone's covered. Do you think interest in the UBI helps with this discussion as we try to move towards universality or is it a bit of a distraction? Uh, UBI is a really exciting way uh, to think about our collective rights in society, but also our collective contributions. Often this is overlooked when we talk about, quote, contributory systems. Uh, But in fact, we all are through our labor, through our care, through our low wages, which are in fact a subsidy to the economy, through our indirect taxes. And then if we have enough income, obviously through our income taxes as well and through our social security contributions. And what I like about UBI is that it recognizes all of that implicitly, all of these contributions and calls attention to the inherent deservingness of everyone in society to benefit from those collective contributions. And I I think that in the social protection world, we really should be building on the inspiration uh, that's behind these principles and and in some ways quite provocative for for our social protection in what has been an insular community. I really think that UBI proposals do come out of a legitimate perception of failure of social insurance systems to meet the needs of the majority of people in, especially in contexts of high informality. So I also think that we've been presented too often because of that indictment of social insurance systems that we're presented with this false choice because we're really treating these tools as sort of separate instruments designed for fundamentally separate groups right? You've got the poorest of the poor uh, having access to the last resort policies, and then you've got all of the people over here, let's say on the right, that are incorporated into social insurance systems through their formal employment. Sometimes you have something a bit messy in the middle, but most of the time you have this big missing piece in the middle. And I think in reality, there are solutions. We've just not been looking for them that involve the extension of those same kind of life cycle protections that exist under social insurance systems, but through tax-financed means. And so that's where the multi-tiered approach, multi-layered systems is, is really, really relevant. Shay, in a paper you wrote last year for an ILO journal, you gave some advice to labour unions about what they could do to support universal social protection. What was that advice and how do labour organisations fit into policymaking around universal social protection? So often we're focusing on policymakers, on decision makers, but there's a really important set of actors out there in civil society that can help in shifting that thinking overall and drawing attention within the broader public as well to social protection, the importance of universal social protection. So, you know, I do think that there's the way that systems are structured and the way that the economy is structured more broadly with with informality kind of creates a divide and conquer situation where workers are are sometimes pitted against each other simply because of their formal or non-formal status. And so the first recommendation we put forward was that labor unions follow what we call the do no harm principle. And what that means is to avoid that knee-jerk 
reaction that a lot of trade unions can have, not all, certainly not all, but trade unions can have, to proposals to expand tax-financed social protection or to expand social protection to groups that are not currently covered in the social insurance system. So instead, to take a, a much more inclusive approach to looking for real solutions together. And what we put forward is, is ways of talking about actual policy solutions that are non-threatening to groups that are currently covered and currently have entitlements, which in, in many cases are under threat. So let's not forget that in many cases, these are hard fought, hard earned entitlements that absolutely need to be protected and are, are under threat every day of erosion. And so it's that, that position is understandable, but it also makes progress quite difficult. So for example, if, if you have a universal pension or a universal life cycle benefit, it actually could have the potential to lower the cost of contributions to people that are in uh, the system because they too would be benefiting from a tax financed component of their pension as well as uh, a contributory component. So that's one example, but also pension tested models where you provide a pension or a benefit uh, to people who are outside the system actually are not threatening to the existing entitlements or to the integrity of social insurance systems. So, so really just looking for, for solutions that can be where joint and mutual interests are emphasized. Maliki, I was wondering if you could give us some insight into how other actors like civil society or organized labor or even international organizations have supported or helped to advocate for expanding social protections? Yeah, uh, actually, we always involve civil society because they are quite important for ensuring the inclusivity and also accountability of the social assisted implementation. So they improve uh, the quality of the program, starting from design, planning, targeting, uh, as well as the implementations. For now, at uh, the village level or the community level, there has been a quite good practice in public hearing that involving civil society and other community representatives. And one of the examples, the uh, outstanding example is actually uh, the MAMPU program. MAMPU is uh, one Australian government-supported programs that actually empower the NGO civil society uh, to have like an extraordinary way on how to involve the vulnerable people in practicing their voices in public hearing at the community level. So one of the practices that they have quite special, uh, like people with disability forum, you know, uh, to, uh, to involve them in discussing, in the planning, as well as in the targeting implementation uh, process, of the programs at the village level. So this is actually one of the quite important steps for sales like minimizing uh, the exclusion errors by providing us more information of the excluded vulnerable people or even maybe on how we can improve the quality of the services itself, you know. Shay, according to the latest estimates from the ILO, 
53% of the world's population still has no access to any form of social protection. 2030 is only eight years away, and between 2017 and 2021, global coverage only increased by a couple of percent. You know, this kind of slow progress perhaps to be expected when you're thinking about the global scale. What do you think about the 2030 target? Is it realistic? And if not, what do you think good progress would look like between now and then? Well, I'm I'm always optimistic. I think if I weren't optimistic, I wouldn't be in this field. <laughs> but it's it's true. When you look at the numbers globally, it's not looking great, is it? It's not looking like we're on track. And on the front lines, working with countries, it is a day-to-day slog. And I think while there are really noteworthy examples of great progress, we've been hearing about them today, there is still... Unfortunately, there are ideas about social protection being only for the poorest or only for the most deserving or those who can demonstrate through their behavior that they're most deserving. These ideas are still really deeply, deeply entrenched around the globe. And in my view, they do pose an obstacle to the kind of large scale expansion that we're all looking for under a USP agenda. You know, they tend to result in more and more of these small scale poverty targeted schemes that I know there's been a lot of debate around this, but tend to muddy the meaning or the definition of universal. So we sort of forget what we're actually talking about. And you mentioned the ILO statistics, and I think, you know, the ILO statistics are important because they do ground us in the life cycle-based, rights-based contingencies that have been the foundation of social protection systems for many, many years. And I guess that's the answer to the question from my point of view. That's how we're going to see progress is really when governments start to Uh, implement and really put their resources and investment behind the establishment of these core life cycle-based schemes. These are the kind of schemes, child benefits, old age pensions. These are the kind of schemes that really reach large numbers of households at one time. Those are the schemes where we can actually have meaningful coverage gains that are going to show up on those indicators that you're talking about. But You know, I I guess I just do think that there is a lot of cause for optimism and that all it really takes is a critical mass of countries to set their own targets. Targets are important. We couldn't operate without them. And I know in a lot of countries, once they're set, that's it. It's in motion and they are going to be achieved. And so that's something uh, that we, we really should be doing to hold ourselves to account in the different countries where we live and work. So that more and more of us, more and more individuals around the world can have the kinds of protections that uh, people in high-income countries and uh, more and more low- and middle-income countries have. Maliki, uh, as you've outlined, you know, Indonesia has made a lot of progress towards achieving universal social protections, particularly in the area of health and health coverage. You know, I guess coming to some of Shay's points about Um, poverty-oriented programs and the sort of the life cycle approach 
there are some parts of the life cycle in Indonesia that remain less well covered, although it was really interesting to hear from you about how Indonesia is looking to fill some of those gaps in the future. I would just be interested in what your reflections are on the lessons that you've learned so far and what do you think other countries could take away from Indonesia's experience? Okay, you know uh, that our president directed us to uh, achieve the zero extreme poverty in 2024. That is six years earlier than that have been stated in SDGs in 2013. So I don't know if Shay says like they are optimistic. Maybe we are very optimistic, but we have to be optimistic, you know. (laughs) So in terms of that, I guess looking at our lesson learned, you know, our most significant achievement now is that our current social protection systems that runs quite well and provide decent coverage to most people, especially the poor and vulnerable. We have some space of improvement, and this one is actually answered by the next, our social protection reform. So Bapanas currently have designed the social protection reform along with the, the other line ministers. But then along the way, we also achieved several milestones in leading the initiatives, because this one is leading to the nationwide changes that we have planned. Yeah. So I think all of these initiatives is quite strong and hopefully our commitment to developing the system continually strong to adopt current best practices of social protection and hopefully it is also can be our vehicles to achieve universal social protection six years earlier than already committed in SDGs. That's ambitious indeed. Thank you very much Maliki and Shay for joining us on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you Joe. It was a pleasure. Thank you. We'll end this episode as we always do with some quick wins. Each month, we ask our guests to give us a quick roundup of news, achievements, or research that has sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. With me today, I have Veronika Wutzak, Social Protection Policy Specialist at the International Labour Organization. Welcome, Veronika. Hi, Joanne. Nice to meet you. So tell us, what have you brought for us today? I would like to share with you some information around joint work that the ILO is implementing with UNICEF, IDA, and other partners. The program is on disability and social protection, and it will end this month. And to mark the closure of the program, we had organized a global virtual conference on disability, social protection and inclusion, Dialogue for Change. It happened on 16, 17 March. But let me go back to the origins of the program. So the program was launched following the first Global Disability Summit in 2018, which also was followed by the adoption of a joint statement adopted by a wide range of UN agencies, organizations of people with disability and development partners in 2019. And this statement reflected an agreement on what countries uh, should be doing to leverage social protection systems for the inclusion of people with disability. The UN PRPD program then focused on how this could be achieved. The main objective of the program was nothing less but contributing to changing people's mindsets, both on the side of the social protection community 
and on the side of the disability community. On the social protection side, schemes and programs in many countries are still firmly rooted in a compensatory understanding of social protection as providing income replacement due to a lack or loss of capacity to earn an income. So there's really an idea of people are not able to work and therefore they need to receive a social protection benefit. However, the problem is that this locks people into inactivity, even if in reality, they would have preferred to find employment instead of receiving a benefit. It also reflects a very low expectation for people with disability to participate in society and economic life. And that's completely contrary to what the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability promotes. So from a CRPD perspective, the role of the social protection system consists in addressing barriers that persons with disabilities face to participate in social and economic life. The cost of overcoming these barriers persist also when people with disability enter the labor market. In fact, these costs can even increase if people with disability find employment, since they then need to spend more on transportation or personal assistance. And by covering these disability extra costs, social protection systems can support the participation in the labor market. But for this to happen, disability benefits need to be designed in a way that they are compatible with work. So now on the side of the disability movement, because of this dominance of the disempowering incapacity to work paradigm, many disability rights activists had reservations to advocate for social protection. But the problem is that if the disability movement does not join us in pushing for change, social protection may get stuck in this anachronistic incapacity to work paradigm. You see, in some countries, people with disability, they are targeted with cash benefits that are grouping together children, people with disability, and the elderly. I mean, there are many people in our society that we do not want to see on the labor market. We don't want child labor. We don't want people in old age having to work until they drop dead because they can't afford to stop working in old age. But the people with disability should not be in that category. In the disability movement, there is a strong approach to saying any person with disability can contribute something meaningful and can find employment if we manage the barriers for them to do so adequately. So during our trainings, webinars, interactions with people from both the social protection and disability communities, we saw this transition to a CRPD compliant approach to social protection gradually materialize. Of course, the program also worked on many other important issues regarding disability and social protection. Things like access to healthcare, community support services, care services. I mean, needs are different depending on whether you talk about children with disabilities or working age or elderly. And um, the global virtual conference on 16, 17 March touched on all these different issues. So for those of the listeners who are interested to um, find out more about all of these aspects of making social protection systems work for the inclusion of persons with disability, they are cordially invited to watch the recording um, on socialprotection.org. Thank you. That's a really great perspective. And it's making me think of the number of times I myself recently have had a sentence like children, the elderly and people with disabilities without a lot of reflection. So that's really a useful prompt, I think. Veronica, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us on the Social Protection Podcast today. Great. Thanks a lot.
and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org from the International Policy Centre for Inclusive Growth. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and leave a review. We'll be back next month. See you then. Thank you.